KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter LA, Melina Abdullah, will talk about the LAPD showing up in force at her house twice in the week since she filed a lawsuit over last year's similar incident. We call it swatting, where the police arrive saying they've had a call that there's a hostage situation at her house. We also call it retaliation. Also, later in the hour, we'll talk about the use of the concept of freedom during the Cold War. Louis Menand will explain his book is The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. It's been long listed for the National Book Award. But first, our weekly Kirsten Cinema update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here, as always. Well, last Friday was a big day in the history of the left in America. The so-called moderate Democrats, along with an army of pundits, wanted a standalone vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the one for roads and bridges and the power grid. But the progressive caucus in the House blocked a separate vote on that bill because last summer, Biden, Pelosi and Chuck Schumer had promised progressives that the bill would proceed in tandem with the reconciliation bill. The one passed with only Democratic support, which we've talked about many times here. It embodies the Democrats' political program, expanded support for child care and elder care, paid family leave, uh, expanding Medicare, climate change mitigation, and more. The pundits were outraged at this progressive move, argue, and they argued that the left was destroying the chance of accomplishing something significant for the American people, along with the chances of winning the 2022 midterms. And then there came this moment of drama when Biden himself uh, headed over to meet with the uh, leaders of the House, and it wasn't clear whether this was because he was going to strong arm progressives into submitting to the moderate demands for a separate vote or ally with the progressives. Remind us what happened. Uh, the short answer is the latter. He allied. On the other hand, uh, the progressives have done uh, a, a number of things very well. And one of them was quite rightly, this wasn't, this didn't require any great imaginative leap. They said, well, we're the ones who are uh, trying to enact Joe Biden's program. Uh, that is empirically correct. Uh, they had uh, initially proposed, Bernie had initially, Bernie Sanders had initially proposed a $6 trillion package over 10 years, I should point out, so that, you know, it wouldn't really amount to anything more than, you should pardon the expression, the Pentagon budget every year. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, they had accepted uh, what Joe Biden thought was possible, which was a $3.5 trillion package over 10 years. Um, so they had not only sort of claimed the high ground, but they were really occupying the ground that is occupied by rank and file Democrats, which is why Joe Biden is there to begin with. Um, rank and file Democrats uh, are clearly to the left of where rank and file Democrats were 20 and 30 years ago, which as you noted, a number of pundits haven't quite realized yet. Nevertheless, the headline the next day in the New York Times was, Biden throws in with left, leaves his agenda in doubt. But you've said it was his agenda that he was defending. Absolutely. And uh, we have a piece online to, uh, on uh, Tuesday by Peter Dreyer which calls that the most misleading headline of the year so far. Of course, the year still has a few more months to run, and headline writers still have a chance to uh, improve on their record. Um, uh, yeah, uh, really, you know, what Biden and the left uh, are actually uh, allied in common cause on this, rather than Biden throwing in with the left. Uh, and it's... Uh, it's clear that, you know, if he wants his signature agenda enacted, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be because of the insistence of the left. And, you know, this also marks, I should say, the first time that progressives have become a distinct, powerful force uh, in the House. 
you know, and all uh, all praise to the Progressive Caucus and in particular its leader, uh, Washington State Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal, who is a, a brilliant strategist uh, who clearly knows what she's doing. So the criticism from the pundits and the moderates that Biden has refused to be pragmatic and that the and that the progressives are failing to be pragmatic and instead are being doctrinaire. This is completely uh, wrong. Uh, the progressives already gave up the Green New Deal. They gave up Medicare for all. Uh, they gave up high taxes on corporations and, and the wealthy. So you've said you've your point is they are the pragmatic ones here, and it's the so-called moderates who are failing to be pragmatic. Yeah, and, and the moderates, let's point out, number all of uh, two in the <laughs> and maybe at most a dozen in the House. So, we're, you know, we're not talking about, uh, you know, uh, the, the Clintonian mainstream of the Democratic Party. That mainstream is gone, and these guys are the fringe. Uh, and, and and a very uh, obstreperous fringe at that. Uh, we've seen reports that Biden told progressives that the reconciliation bill will have to come down to about $2 trillion. Last week on the show, you suggested a brilliant solution to the problem of how to get there. Remind us your solution and remind us what's happened to your solution since we talked last week. Well, uh, I had written last week that uh, if the Democrats enact uh, all these programs in the bill, but only for four or five years, that you know cuts the uh, the dollar total almost in half, uh, and it also sort of reconfigures the American politics of the next two and four years. Uh, the twenty twenty four presidential election becomes in part a referendum on whether the American people want to keep what at that point would be up and running programs uh, of uh, affordable childcare, of universal pre-K, of paid sick leaves, and of Medicare covering uh, dental and vision and hearing issues, which Medicare currently does not cover. Uh, I think the Democrats would be thrilled to uh, run in 2024 and perhaps even in 2022, if they can get this through fast enough, on uh, you know the, the basic the campaign plank that we want to continue these programs and the Republicans don't. I mean that's an election I think uh, you know that would go well for the Democrats, and I I, I think that 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 so that's what I argued uh, last week, and then on the Sunday talk shows, as it turned out. Um, uh, both uh, on, on the Sunday talk shows, uh, members of Congress from uh, uh, the Progressive Caucus leader uh, Jayapal to AOC to Ro Khanna all said, "Well, this is what we'd like to do. We we, we you know we want to fund these programs uh, fully, but for you know a, a limited number of years, not the ten years, but maybe just through 2025." And, uh, you know, uh, then uh, subject their continuation to the vote of the American people in the 2024 elections. So um, uh, I'm not used to uh, having my ideas uh, picked up so quickly. And I, I certainly these ideas were already around, although I don't think anyone had written, written them journalistically before I did. But it's, uh, I, you know, I, I'm glad to see the progressives uh, running with it, whether or not you know, they, they got the idea from what I wrote or not. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here first. Yep. Well, now it's time for our regular feature, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, Enemies of the People. The reconciliation bill still depends in the Senate, assuming we can get it out of the House, on the votes of those two prob problematic Democrats. Um, We've been asking for a long time the question, what does Joe Manchin want? And at last he has answered it. What is the answer? Well, he's okay pretty much with the uh, the taxes, uh, the tax hikes that Joe Biden has proposed, but he only wants to spend $1.5 trillion uh, on the program. And if any, if any money comes in from those tax hikes beyond that, he wants that devoted to debt retirement. Uh, although, you know, since the usual argument for debt retirement is we're concerned about the future of our grandchildren, 
it seems to me that uh, the uh, child tax credit and universal pre-K and a free community college do, does a lot more directly for uh, people's grandchildren than some level of debt retirement. And, you know, he also talks about means testing, which is really the way to make a, a program ineffective. I mean, you know, programs that are widely supported and effective don't require a set of hurdles and complexities uh, to sign on to. The lead example of a program that requires really none of that is Social Security. You just age into it, uh, as my colleague David Dayan has written. So, uh, so we but, know what you. So yeah, that's, we, that's what Joe Joe uh, Joe Manchin has uh, put forward. So at last, after many months, we know what Joe Manchin wants. And that brings us to the next question. What does Kirsten Cinema want? And what is her answer to that question? Well, she hasn't given a public answer to that question, although uh, she, she is not enamored of any tax hikes, even though she uh, voted against the tax cuts that uh, were passed under Donald Trump. If cinema has an, uh, a governing ideology other than a kind of sociopathic narcissism, it's, it's not clear what that ideology is. She is uh, uh, wrapped herself uh, in, uh, in, in, in an enigma. Uh, According to the New York Times, she's privately told colleagues she will not accept any corporate or income tax rate increases. Why would she do that? Well, she's certainly gotten uh, a lot of uh, funding from corporations and uh, and the rich. And I don't think anyone has studied her last uh, uh, set of comp- campaign contributions, but I bet you she hasn't gotten many from rank and file Democrats when compared to other Senate Democrats who are up uh, running, running for uh, election uh, either in 2022 or 2024 when she's on the ballot. So uh, that, that's part of it. And then, you know, her own ambitions, such as they are, are, uh, are, are kind of unclear. She's sort of intimated she might want to be some kind of executive or proprietor in the wine industry. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, she, she is uh, often, to put it mildly, she is off in her own space. That's a nice she's way of putting it. That's well-funded by corporations, Uh, that that much is clear. Well, right now, nearly one third of Arizona Democrats say they view her unfavorably in a recent poll. The state party put her on notice of a potential vote of no confidence, and there are plans underway to primary her. She doesn't come up for reelection for another four years, which means it would be, you know, three years from now that this would become a a, a big issue. and she's being attacked by by progressive radical activists now that on her return to Arizona this weekend for a fundraiser, she was confronted by activists. And um, so she's well aware of her lack of popularity with with the uh, progressives. Uh, my neighbor Rob down the block here asked the question, is it possible to pass the reconciliation bill without Kirsten Cinema could Biden and Chuck Schumer recruit one Republican to vote yes, so that even if she voted no, there would be a tie vote that could be resolved by the vice president casting the vote in favor. Maybe, I don't know, Mitt Romney, maybe Lisa Murkowski. What do you think? Well, I think the only one that's even conceivable is Murkowski, who, who ran uh, having been defeated in a Republican primary in a previous election, uh, ran as an independent Republican and, and won, uh, won that election in Alaska. Uh, you know, Romney is opposed to virtually everything in the reconciliation bill, uh, as are most Republicans uh, who we think of as poss- uh, possibly more moderate. They're really not. Uh, they may be moderate compared to uh, Trump zealots, but that doesn't mean they're moderate in any rational, uh, you know, consideration. Uh, I mean, Murkowski is the only one who m- you can imagine might do this, but I would bet against it. If she, if she does, I think it will remain 
uh, a secret uh, uh, up until the time Schumer suddenly calls for a vote. Uh, uh, you know, but uh, we shall see. Well, that's an, there's another big issue lurking behind the daily stories about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, uh, and that is that big infrastructure and so, social welfare welfare, <clears throat> and that is that big infrastructure and social welfare welfare bills take time, often a lot of time, to get going after they're passed. And the Democrats don't have a lot of time. They need concrete results they can point to in the midterms next year and big accomplishments for the 2024 presidential elections. Time is a huge challenge to the Democrats right now. You've just written a big piece about this problem in the new issue of the American Prospect. Please explain your argument here. Well, you know, when the government uh, appropriates funds for something as an in infrastructure, uh, it usually is thinking sort of in three-dimensional terms, a bridge, uh, a, a freeway, a, a, an airport. Uh, but we need a more Einsteinian rather than Newtonian <laughs> perspective here. These things have impact that also depends on the time element when they're up and running. Uh, Roosevelt realized that. Uh, Roosevelt had, uh, in his initial 100 days, created uh, you know, a, a lot of funding for big ticket projects, which would be run by the Interior Department under under Harold Ickes, uh, bridges uh, like the Triborough Bridge, uh, uh, dams like the Hoover Dam and the uh, Bonneville Dam, the TVA, uh, aircraft carriers, which came in very handy during World War II. Uh, but those took forever to build. And he had one aide, Harry Hopkins, who came to him and said, look, uh, we got some people who are gonna starve to death this in the first winter of your presidency, 1933-34. Let's take some of that money and reallocate it for immediate job creation, pick and shovel work. Uh, and they did, and they built uh, uh, lots of post offices and paved a lot of roads and airport runways. And in a nation of 125 million people, Hopkins put 4 million people to work in two months. Astounding. Uh, it is. Every, you've cited this figure before, and it's astounding yeah. every time you cite it. I know, I know. And this is one reason why uh, the armed services uh, loved him during World War II. He had a record of being able to mobilize things faster than anyone else. Um, the Democrats need that kind of perspective now. And that's another argument, finally, for the reconciliation bill. The infrastructure bill is going to take time. You know, you've got uh, now environmental impact reports and uh, local zoning and all kinds of things that weren't really around uh, in uh, in the 1930s, uh, you know, and competitive bidding and all of that is good government, but it's also slow government. Uh, some of the reconciliation bill, uh, like the child tax credit, which is already in effect, uh, you know, you, you can get up and running now. Uh, uh, you can, you know, get paid sick leave up and running in uh, within six months. I'm, uh, so, you know, if they want fast results and they know th and they need to know that uh, that's really, if they're going to survive the 2022 elections, they have to deliver fast. Well, that's the kind of thing they need. You say uh, in the prospect that one, one of the biggest problems is what you call outreach capacity. What does that mean? Well, uh, you know, how many people actually know about uh, some of these programs? We, we know now that uh, the, uh, the child tax credit, uh, you know, uh, there are people who aren't, uh, you know, who, who are eligible for it, who, uh, who aren't aware, aware of it. And for means-tested programs like Medicaid, uh, there are always people who fall through the cracks there because it's not clear if they're eligible uh, on the... Uh, uh, eviction uh, moratorium, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're, you qualified if you filled out a rather complicated form and your landlord did and all of this. So simplicity and uh, getting the word out is very important. That, that's why social security, as I said, is, uh, is such a popular program. There are no hurdles to leap uh, in, uh, in becoming eligible. Uh, and the more hurdles there are to leap, uh, you know, the less effective, uh, ultimately, a program is going to be. 
Harold Meyerson's piece, Liberalism and Time, is featured in the September-October issue of the American Prospect. You can read it online at prospect.org. Now it's time to say goodbye to Harold Meyerson. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. And if we have to say it, we'll say it. Goodbye. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, has been targeted by the LAPD again, twice last week in swatting incidents where large numbers of police officers show up at her house with guns drawn. We call that harassment. For that story, we turn to Melina Abdullah herself, in addition to being co-founder and a leader of Black Lives Matter LA, she's also professor and former chair of Pan-African Studies at Cal State LA. Recently, she's been a leader in the fight for ethnic studies in K-12 schools and in universities, and she was part of the historic victory that made ethnic studies a requirement in the LA public schools. She's also served on the LA County Human Relations Commission. She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, ABC, PBS, BET, lots of other places. And she hosts a radio program, Move the Crowd, on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, Mondays at 7 a.m. and 4 p.m., also online at kpfk.org. Melina Abdullah, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Well, tell us what happened with you in the LAPD last week. So the day after we announced our lawsuit against LAPD for a swatting that took place in August of 2020, the very next day, police showed up at the home of my neighbor, claiming that I had been swatted again. Um, and then later in conversation with a journalist, they said, well, this time it wasn't about a kidnapping. It was actually they got they alleged they got a call from my son, who's only 11 years old um, and would have been in school at the time and has no cell phone of his own. Um, they alleged that he called and said that I OD'd on pills. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the only pills I pop are vitamin C and <laughs> elderberry and black seed oil. Right. So, OK. There would be no overdosing. But if there were an overdose, I would think that the right unit to dispatch would be paramedics and ambulance. Why yes. would police show up at the home of my next door neighbor if I were in need of medical care? That made absolutely no sense. And so as we were complaining about that during a our weekly in police associations rally, and I think we can have plenty to talk about about why police associations are particularly problematic, given what LAPD is, but also given what's happening nationally and um, the FBI raid on the New York Police Association, right? Um, <clears throat> so we've been protesting police associations every single Wednesday for about eight months now. And um, as we were doing our weekly rally, my daughter who was with me got a FaceTime call from a neighbor and police surrounded my home again with assault rifles dressed in SWAT gear. Um, and they claim that they got an emergency call that I was kidnapped and being held for ransom when all they really needed to do is literally look out their front window. And as they were surrounding my house, I was in front of theirs. Mm. And the original swatting incident, August 2020, we talked about that here shortly afterwards, but remind us about that one. That one was really scary. That one was the most traumatic and violent of all of them. So in August 2020, I was preparing actually for a press conference um, at Cal State LA about the new College of Ethnic Studies, which we helped to initiate. And we were working towards some things there and I was getting ready. And um, a friend of mine, a comrade, um, 
often make sure that I'm safe and travels with me to things. And so um, his name is Billion. And um, my children were at home because it was still quarantine, right? Mm -hmm. So children were doing online learning. And Billion comes up and he says, and we heard a little bit of something happening outside, but Billion comes up, rings the bell, comes inside and goes, there is a million police around your house. And I thought it was because I live in a pretty active area. Um, Sometimes things come into my neighborhood, into the residential space. And I thought it was just something happening over on Crenshaw that had spilled into the neighborhood, right? And I said, don't worry about it. It's not for us. And I'm actually on the phone doing something else, trying to get, you know, get ready. And then I kind of glance out the front window and notice police with riot gear or SWAT gear on. And as I approach the window, two of the officers, which were originally across the street, and I could hear a helicopter overhead run towards my window with assault rifles pointed at me. So I turn out of, you know, the window space where they could see me and immediately like look at Billion and say, I think we got to go on social media. So I go on Instagram live and decided that if they kill me, they're not going to kill me where nobody sees. And so um, went and got my kids, got my kids kind of um, barricaded in a, a room that was as far away from where police were as possible and then decided to come out. Um, They yelled, everyone at my address, come out with your hands up. So I had my phone in my hand. I opened the door to the front door and I yell out, I have a phone in my hand. It's just a phone. Um, Thinking about people like Corinne Gaines and uh, Stefan Clark and Um, wind up coming out and there were dozens of officers all with assault rifles um, trained on me and trained on my house. And my thought as a mom is what every mom's thought would be, which is let me get them away from my house because my kids are inside, you know? And so the relief was, it was extremely traumatic. The relief and beauty in it was, though, because I feel like we always should look for that, is that what I couldn't see from my front window is to my left were dozens of neighbors in the street also filming. Um, And one of my neighbors, a Black father, ran up and met me at my walkway and um, put his body in front of my body as I was walking towards the police, his wife then joined and put her body next to me and, um, you know, literally kept me safe. We say we have a saying in Black Lives Matter, we keep us safe. Um, My neighbors literally in all three incidents and especially in um, most profoundly in the first one, my neighbors kept me safe and alive. Yeah, it's it's a horrifying story. And yeah, you've got some wonderful uh, neighbors. And then just two weeks ago, you sued the city of LA and the LAPD over this swatting incident. Tell us about that lawsuit. That's right. I mean, uh, we did get the 911 call. So we did get the tape from the August 2020 swatting. The caller clearly says that he's targeting me because I'm with Black Lives Matter. And We know that the LAPD did not have to respond the way that it did. They did not have to um, attempt to terrify us. They did not have to point assault rifles at us. They knew what it was. So LAPD was absolutely complicit in the swatting, in the traumatization, in the wounds that my children now carry. And so we filed a lawsuit. Um, against them for their role in that. And it was how many days after that, that the second swatting incident took place? It was the very next day. The very next day. Uh, Meanwhile, you've been calling on Mayor Eric Garcetti to fire the LAPD Chief Michael Moore. Tell us about the case against Chief Moore. It's astounding to us that 
Chief Michael Moore has been able to get away with what he's been able to get away with. It's astounding that a police chief who detonates explosives in a South Central community would be left on the force. Um, and we, we remember that the bombing um, on 27th Street killed two people. It killed Ozzie Hutchins and uh, Ramon Reyes. And he's been left on the force, right? Um, leading the force. We know that Michael Moore is also responsible for the beatings and abusive protesters in the summer of 2020 at a level that is really unparalleled by any other city. And instead of being um, fired, he's advocating for tens of millions more dollars to LAPD and the city's leadership is considering it. Um, and when we think about people being killed by LAPD, what Michael Moore does is put out a solid PR campaign and then um, really enable the abuse of our people. And so we have a petition that has been circulating, um, tinyurl.com slash fire LAPD chief more, tinyurl.com slash fire LAPD chief more. And it outlines this and so many other reasons, right? Um, or these and so many other reasons. And then of course, when we think about the swatting and targeting of activists, including me, um, that's another reason for Michael Moore to go. Just to put it in context, I did consult with uh, movement elders over the last couple of weeks. And I said, you know, I've heard of people being swatted before. Other folks in my um, orbit have been swatted, right? But I have never heard of people being swatted routinely. And when I talked with folks, no one else had either. No one else had heard of someone who's been swatted three times. I've been swatted three times in the span of just about a year. Yeah. And, you know, LAPD bears some responsibility in that. And I believe in chopping from the top. So Michael Moore has to go. On a brighter note, you and Black Lives Matter LA and a lot of the rest of us campaign to elect a new progressive district attorney for LA County and we succeeded George Gascon. He's done some good things since taking office. Let's talk about what George Gascon has already done and what we need him to do next. Yeah, well, George Gascon has lived up to 90% of his campaign promises. Um, he has ushered in progressive justice reform. He has refused to try children as adults. He has said, that you know, we are not putting people on death row, it's costly and it's unethical, right? He said, we're gonna end sentencing enhancements, which means people will be prosecuted for the crimes they're actually accused of, not for the neighborhoods in which they live. Um, these are all great things. We know that at least 14 officers are being charged with crimes or investigated for crimes as a result of Gascon saying, you know, police need to be held accountable. So we know that the terrible police department in Torrance, California, where Christopher DeAndre Mitchell um, was murdered, um, two Torrance police officers are being prosecuted for hate crimes, for spray painting swastikas on cars, right? We know that a third Torrance police officer is being prosecuted for shooting a man with disabilities inside of a mall. Um, and we know that there's many more investigations and uh, uh, LA County Sheriff's deputies are also being investigated out of the East LA station where we know the Bandidos Sheriff's gang comes from and where Sheriff Alex Villanueva comes from himself. So Gascon is doing um, really important work and we'd like to see him move on the prosecution of police who kill our people. So when he took office um, under Jackie Lacey, 648 people, his predecessor, 648 people had been killed by police on her watch. We know that there's new studies that um, estimate the undercount of people being killed by police at about 55%. So, yeah. you know, we know that this is also an undercount. Um, but Gascon so far has not prosecuted any of the police who've killed our people, even though he's pledged to. And so we need a little movement um, and collaboration and support from the County Board of Supervisors. We know that there are assistant um, um, district attorneys, um, deputy district attorneys 
who are refusing to um, move what Gascon is trying to move. We know that he's trying to hire deputy district attorneys who would be able to move these police prosecutions. But because of the civil service requirements in the county, it's been very difficult for him to get new folks in and to kind of hold to account even the DAs who are supposed to be working for him. So we need everybody to, to help make sure that um, murderous police are held accountable. Melina Abdullah, you can listen to her on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, Mondays at 7 a.m., repeated at 4 p.m. And the best way I know to keep up with her is to follow her on Twitter, at DocMellyMel. That's it, DocMellyMel on Twitter and Instagram. Melina, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Take care. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the idea of freedom during the Cold War. For that, we turn to Louis Menand. His new book is The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker. He teaches English at Harvard, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for his last book, The Metaphysical Club. We talked about it here. And he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Barack Obama, along with Wynton Marsalis and Terry Gross. Luke Manand, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, let's start with what this book is not. It's not a book about the cultural Cold War, the official use of culture as a weapon against the Soviet Union, for example, sending Duke Ellington on a world tour as an example of American freedom. And it's not about Cold War culture, the way American films and novels and paintings expressed ideas about the Cold War. For example, my favorite, the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where the pod people look just like your neighbors, but their minds have been taken over by a sinister and alien force. So what is this book about? So this is just a cultural intellectual history focused on the period 1945 to 1965, that is to say from the end of the Second World War to the year the U.S. intervened militarily in Vietnam. And uh, the Cold War is definitely an important context for that history, but it's not the only context. So I try to put it in its, in its proper perspective, looking at it from the point of view of the people who were making works of art and composing music and writing books in that period. It's a big book, 726 pages of text and covers pretty much everything. I want to take a few key examples that I hope illuminate the larger issues. The first writer to use the term Cold War to describe the post-war world was George Orwell. Of course, his book 1984 was the key work here, published in 1949, sold 2 million copies by 1956. When, when I read 1984 in high school, I was taught the book was about what the United States would look like if the communists took over. We'd have Big Brother is watching you and the Ministry of Truth and War is Peace. But was that Orwell's purpose to warn against a communist takeover? I don't think that it was. It's interesting that right after the war, Orwell wrote an, an article saying that he worried about various possible futures, and one of them was that there would be a Cold War. So from Orwell's point of view, what 1984 shows is what it would look like if the world were engaged in a Cold War, which would be these interminable and unwinnable struggles between these massive superpowers. In the novel, as you remember, there's, there's three of these sort of enormous states, Eurasia, East Asia, and Oceania, and they're constantly fighting with each other and then changing their alliances and fighting all over again. I think what Orwell had in mind there was the relationship between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, who were allies until they weren't. Um, but that's what he worried would happen. He actually says in this article, it'd be better if we just all got wiped out by nuclear bombs Ugh. because we start over again than if, we, than if we entered into this struggle. But that book became a Bible for cold warriors uh, on every point in the political spectrum because it seemed to them to indicate what the world would be like if we didn't fight a cold war. 
So totalitarianism was the first big theme of Cold War thought, which was, of course, the opposite of freedom. And then there was existentialism. Man is condemned to be free, even though man has a strong desire to escape from freedom. This is a specific idea, you show, that arose in a specific context that then became the general idea of the era. Yeah, you know, the 1945, the Germans call it zero hour. And that was true in France, too, because once the occupation ended, there was an opportunity to begin again with a clean slate. And lots of people in France had an interest in doing that because their role during the occupation wasn't all that noble. So there was room for a culture here to walk on the stage. And as if on cue, one did, Jean-Paul Sartre. He was ready to run in 1945 with existentialism. And it caught on in France. It became, of course, subject of enormous controversy in France. Uh, and then it spread to the U.S. because it was covered widely in American publications like Partisan Review. And there was a period when existentialism just flooded the cultural field. Everybody thought about jazz and painting and lifestyles in terms of existentialism. So that's, I would say, of, of the post-war schools of thought, that's the first in line. One of my favorite chapters in your book is the one about the family of man, the photo exhibition that opened at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City in 1955. It broke attendance records there. Then it was sent around the country and around the world, eventually to 87 venues in 37 countries, seen by 9 million people. The paperback sold more than 4 million copies. I still remember my family's copy. Lots of my friends do. The idea was, quote, the essential oneness of mankind throughout the world, close quote. How did that become such a big deal in the dark days of the Cold War? People loved this show. Uh, so in terms of cultural diplomacy, it was by far the most effective exhibition that the U.S. mounted. What's interesting to me about the re reputation of the family of man, probably because Roland Barthes wrote this famous critique of it, in his first book, Mythologies, uh, is that it's regarded as a kind of piece of U.S. propaganda. So what was interesting to me when I researched it is that the people who really loved the show were the communist press. <laughs> so the Daily Worker ran many pieces about how great it was. And when it went to France, which is where Roland Barthes either saw it or didn't see it, uh, the, also the communist press in Paris all published these encomia to the, to the family of man. Why was that? Because that was the Soviet line world peace through common understanding. Uh, that peace was their slogan as freedom was our slogan. So they saw the show as fitting exactly with what the communist propaganda wanted. Um, and when it went to Moscow, when it was part of this big exhibition in Moscow, uh, that the famous exhibition where Richard Nixon and Khrushchev get into the kitchen debate, uh, it was extremely popular uh, in Moscow as well, uh, seen by millions of Muscovites. So uh, so it has an interesting history because it's, it has a reputation of being kind of the opposite of the way it was received. Of course, the message of peace through understanding is an anodyne message, so anybody can sign off on it. <laughs> we need to talk about James Baldwin, who, of course, has had a huge renaissance in the last few years. He started out in the 50s as an expat living in Paris while the early battles over segregation in the South were underway. In 1957, James Baldwin published a piece I learned from your book about William Faulkner, a literary icon in the 50s. White liberals considered Faulkner a man of broad humanist sympathies who understood the Southern point of view and spoke with authority on race relations. Your words. What was Baldwin's piece about? So Faulkner uh, had given this interview in which he said he deplored the extremism of uh, anti-segregationists in the South. So this is in 1956. It's just the only movement in the South that was going on was the bus boycott, which is hardly an extremist effort. Uh, and he said that uh, although he was uh, supported uh, integration uh, sort of as a goal, uh, he would go out in the streets and shoot Negroes mm. from Mississippi and the United States. So. He probably drunk when he gave this interview, but that didn't prevent people from reprinting it. And I think Partisan Review gave it to Baldwin to write a piece about it, and Baldwin went after Faulkner. That was important because by that, that point, Faulkner had won the Nobel Prize. He was highly esteemed. He won two Pulitzer Prizes. He was highly esteemed 
as an American author, his career rescued after years of neglect. Um, and I think a lot of Northern whites thought he speaks with authority. He's a Southerner who understands the race problem. Lois says, no, where have you been? He said, if you're serious about this. So that was an important piece. He was, he, he was a brave guy, Baldwin. Then Baldwin became a bestseller in 1961 with his essay collection, Nobody Knows My Name, and then his novel, Another Country, in 1962. Then in 63, he was on the cover of Time magazine. But I was a little surprised to learn from your book, he was not universally celebrated by liberals. Hannah Arendt didn't like his work. Susan Sontag didn't like his work. The first issue of the New York Review of Books didn't like his book. Why not? Yeah, the first issue of the New York Review of Books, the very first page is an attack on the fire next time. The reason, I think, is pretty simple. Baldwin's position was that whites, liberals or not, have to own their part in white supremacy. And white liberals don't like to hear that. They don't associate themselves with segregationists, prejudiced people. And there was a backlash against Baldwin right at the height of his renown in 1963 when he publishes The Fire Next Time, which is an incredible book. Uh, you start to get people like Sontag attacking him. And I think it really drove him off the main stage. He kind of lost the white audience. And then for a long time, his career went on for quite a while. His books were neglected or Irving Howe attacked his novels. It was pretty unpleasant. And then, of course, about five or six years ago, he gets resurrected because he's sending the same message that Black Lives Matter protesters said today, which is white people have to own their part in this system. And a lot of white people don't, don't want to hear that. Kind of the end of your story in the mid-60s with the war in Vietnam, the idea that the United States was fighting for the idea of freedom did have a, a sudden and dramatic ending the discovery that the campaign for cultural freedom was being funded by the CIA. That was the work of Ramparts magazine in 1967, which exposed the fact that the CIA had set up a series of dummy foundations which were funneling money to liberal organizations and publications, starting with the National Student Association and including most famously a magazine, liberal magazine called Encounter. As a student, I was hired to do some of the research for that story in Ramparts. Part, so I'm very interested in it. Why was CIA funding of the cultural Cold War such a huge thing for American intellectuals? Well, let's just take the example of Encounter Magazine. So Encounter Magazine was uh, published by the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which is headquartered in Paris, which is ostensibly an independent organization, but actually it was entirely a creature of the agency. And it published magazines in European countries. There was one in Germany, Dermonat. There was one in France, one in Spain, and so on. And Encounter was the one published in London. And the editor of Encounter was a CIA agent. This was not known to the intellectuals who published. Almost every important intellectual you could imagine, the Trillings, Dwight McDonald, everybody, published an Encounter. It was like partisan review, in effect. And uh, they didn't realize that they were being paid by the CIA. And when that comes out, Actually, a little before the Ramparts piece, but, but not until the Ramparts piece doesn't really blow up in 1967, it casts a light on what everybody had been doing for 20 years, which is to say that intellectuals thought of themselves as independent from the state. They could be critical of the state. They didn't think they were dancing to the state's tune. Suddenly, when it turns out they're creatures of the state, they're saying exactly what the state wants them to say. It's a big crisis. Christopher Lash, of course, wrote a very famous article about this. It showed up the kind of hypocrisy of establishment intellectuals in the United States. I think that's an extreme version, interpretation of it, but that's how it was interpreted. So when you get to that point in my story, you look back, you think like, what was really going on here? You know, who was paying the piper, as, uh, as people say. But of course, the defense of all those people uh, who wrote for all those magazines, well, nobody ever told me what to say. And I criticized parts of the United States in my article. But they didn't have to tell them what to say. That's the whole beauty of I it. Mean, they were saying exactly what they were supposed to be saying. It's not true that people didn't get censored. Dwight McDonald famously had a piece killed by Encounter that was a little too extremely anti-U.S. So they, they, you know, they carefully controlled. Same with the NSA. The NSA is the National Student Association, as you say, John. That was the story that Ramparts uh, scooped, uncovered, uh, that started to unravel the whole tapestry. There, too, they were very careful about 
making sure that the leadership of the NSA, which is a pretty big organization that had international root, uh, connections and so on, that the leadership was compatible with U.S. policy. There was a crisis looming for the NSA, which was Vietnam. And if the NSA had become anti-war, then it would have been a problem for the government because obviously you couldn't use government money to support an anti-war group. But that's another case where the CIA is just behind the scenes, making sure that everything's running exactly the way the government wants it. So where do we end up with the idea of freedom in the Cold War? Writers in the 50s regarded it as the most important good in life. But today, of course, freedom is a right-wing idea. It's what Republicans say the federal government is taking away from us, us meaning mostly white men, that freedom not to wear masks against COVID-19. Did they inherit that idea from the Cold War critique of totalitarianism? Was freedom mostly Cold War ideology? Does the concept of freedom that we have today have really have any value if we're not Republicans? It's an impossibly mercurial concept. Everybody appropriates it. Martin Luther King uses the word freedom 20 times in the I Have a Dream speech. Mm -hmm. He uses the word equality only once. George Wallace uses the word freedom in his inaugural address as governor of Alabama, where he calls for segregation now and forever. Uh, one of the most famous lines about freedom out of 1964 is extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Barry Goldwater. So everybody's on board the freedom train to the point where it doesn't really mean a whole lot. I think it means something to each person who uses it, but it's very hard to generalize about the meaning of the term. The concept of freedom from the state and so forth is just a deeply rooted in American history, as you know. Um, so it's not something that was invented in 1945. Everybody's on board the freedom train. Louis Menand, his new book is The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. It's a great one. Luke, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music